Every day, my friend Gordon and I talk about politics. UK politics, US politics, Brexit, Trump, stuff that's going on in the world, you name it. So we thought we'd record it and share it with everyone in what we're calling the experiment. Good Monday morning to you, Gordon. It's the 4th of November. I hope you had a good weekend. Uh, my weekend was was pretty muddy. Amy and I were uh, we're crossing farmers' fields and going on hiking trails and um, exploring some uh, some really cool uh, places in Perthshire, um, but it was raining <laughs> quite hard most of the weekend. Um, but it was good fun. Uh, so the stories that I'm kind of following, there's actually one really funny one. I was looking at, uh, I think it was a BBC article about the the main marginals. Maybe it was a guardian. Um, <clears throat> and it's just forecasting some of the closest marginals. And the closest marginal in the country, you probably knew this, I didn't know this, was actually is actually Northeast Fife, where we've both lived, right? Uh, and you uh, famously uh, interviewed uh, Ming the Merciless, Ming Campbell, um, and gave him a pretty tough interview, I have to say. Um, it was great to watch. But anyway, the um, the majority of last time, so the, the, the MP that took over after uh, Ming Campbell was an SMP guy. That was in the SMP wave of uh, whenever it was, 2015, named Stephen Gethens, right? And uh, Amy and I were living in St. Monans at the time. So Stephen Gethens was returned to his seat in this past election, but his majority was two, as in literally two votes. And it's a it's pretty wild because uh, had we been living in in uh, in St. Monans in 2007, and I I I, I don't know uh, about Amy, but like you know, if we were to have voted for the Lib Dem candidate, that could have been a tie. That's pretty wild to me. Anyway, um, so the things that I'm I'm looking at uh, today, uh, uh, Nigel Farage saying that he's not going to stand as a candidate. I think it's probably a wise move. I think he does a lot better. Uh, he's clearly his Brexit party is clearly a different kettle of fish than the um, than uh, UKIP uh, was in terms of the organizational ability. And I think it's wise for him to focus on running around supporting all these candidates rather than trying to focus on a constituency. Um, I think it also speaks to a bit more savvy on his part um, that I think should should concern the conservatives. Um, they they are still claiming that they're going to run people in 600 plus seats uh, or 600 plus uh, constituencies. If the uh, conservatives don't agree to a pact, I still think that's a bit of bluster and they might stand down um, that, but uh, it also doesn't look like Johnson has any indication of, um, you know, of going forward with that. Uh, meanwhile, the, the there was the first local kind of uh, pact that had been announced by the Greens and the Lib Dems and Plaid Cymru. Uh, I think it was so that the Lib Dem candidate would stand aside and the Greens would have a clearer shot of getting a um, a seat currently held by a Tory. That's really interesting. I don't remember what the seat was. So I just find that that stuff pretty pretty fascinating. Also reading about just what the the next stage of Brexit will look like, you know, and when Boris Johnson says we got to get Brexit done, it's a bit disingenuous because like literally this is just, 
just the withdrawal agreement. It starts then, um, you know, apparently five months for you to uh, uh, negotiate a trade deal. Um, and these take, you know, up to a decade to 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 agree. So even if he did get his deal through or anybody get their deal through, they would probably have to extend, get an extension for the trade deal. And that would it's going to be a protracted mess for years to come. And it's just, I guess, reminded <laughs> reminded me that we're unfortunately not not going to be over uh, this anytime soon. Um, on the U.S. side, um, I was looking I'm still following, obviously, uh, impeachment. Uh, and I think the Republicans are starting to coalesce around the argument that they're going to be leading with, which is uh, it was inappropriate, but it was not impeachable. And so they're going to frame it as a partisan, you know, partisan attack on something. So basically, they're going to take the, the attack that the Democrats did against Bill Clinton. Now, with Bill Clinton, he wasn't running for the reelection. It did severely kind of damage his relationship um, with Congress, not that it was great in the first place, but at the same time, his uh, approval rating didn't really uh, didn't really uh, suffer. In fact, it 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 got better. So if uh, Trump gets impeached, um, this will be the first time that an impeached president is trying for re-election. And so, what does that what effect does that have? And I think the the Republicans would tell you that you know Republican. Uh, discipline is paramount during this process. And so far, so good in terms of the House Republicans. Let's see if the Senate Republicans would also stay uh, kind of on message and uh, will be disciplined in, in um, you know, hearing the case and swiftly acquitting him. Um, anyway, uh, that's, that's what I've been, been focused on. So uh, what have you been, what have you been reading? Hey, Gordon, uh, it's the evening. And I just read that Sir Lindsay Hoyle has been elected the new common speaker. What do you think about that? And who the hell is he? Sir Lindsay Hoyle is a uh, Labour MP and uh, one of the uh, deputy speakers of the House of Commons. And as uh, long ago as six months ago, six months before the, uh, the contest for the new speaker officially started, uh, the prediction markets, I'm thinking specifically of uh, Predicted.com, one of these uh, online politics uh, gambling uh, sites, gave the odds of uh, Lindsay Hoyle becoming the next speaker at more than 50%. So he's been the uh, favourite for some time. Um, the election for speaker is, is quite unlike most or really any other uh, vote that happens in Parliament uh, because it's a, a secret ballot. Um, uh, in uh, when when uh, Labour was in power in the uh, early uh, 2000s, um, their uh, MPs were whipped to support Michael Martin, a Labour MP, who then did indeed go on to become the Speaker. Uh, but this upset quite a lot of MPs. It upset Conservative MPs because um, they felt that uh, there was a tradition of the Speaker alternating between a Labour MP and a Conservative MP, and that Michael Martin uh, broke that. And uh, Labour MPs were upset about that because they thought that the Speaker's job was not really supposed to be, uh, you know, somebody who's chosen by the government. It's supposed to be somebody who represents Parliament and the interests of all MPs. And so that's why the secret ballot was introduced for the uh, election of the next Speaker, and that's how John Burko became the uh, Speaker. And so that's also how Lindsay Hoyle became the speaker. And so it makes it interesting because 
uh, it maybe makes it a bit more of a popularity contest amongst the MPs. Uh, uh, perhaps also you get MPs voting for various different reasons uh, to do with the, you know high politics or because they don't like this person and so forth. So although he was the favourite, it was perhaps even this morning a bit more unpredictable that he was going to be uh, going to be elected. Um, Although, if you watch debates where he has presided over in his role as deputy speaker, he's a lot more, how shall we say this, he's a lot more boring than John Burko was. There's none of this uh, exciting kind of back and forth of uh, insults and put downs and, and stuff that made John Burko so exciting. The thing that was actually revolutionary about John Burko was the amount of power he gave to Parliament and to backbenchers. Uh, the number of um, emergency debates in which uh, uh, ministers were forced to come to the Commons and answer questions um, out, outside the normal schedule of things increased dramatically under his uh, speakership. And so it will be interesting to see whether or not Lindsay Hoyle continues in that tradition or reverts to a more kind of um, uh, parliament that is a bit more uh, uh, respectful of the, uh, of the government and uh, more deferential of the existing government. Uh, yes, I I, uh, I also saw that um, that Nigel Farage has said he's not going to stand for a seat. You know, every time he stood for a seat before, I guess what he was thinking is that every time he's done that is it's really drawn attention away from every other seat that a UKIP or a UKIP as it was, and I guess the Brexit Party going forward, uh, it's really detracted from the attention from the other seats and focused attention on him. He's put all his effort into campaigning there, and that's also had a byproduct of the other parties also campaigning there or coordinating their activities to make sure that they beat they beat him so perhaps he's thinking that he can um uh avoid that and so campaign across the entire country if he doesn't stand but other mps do on the other hand he is the face of the party in fact he's the face of the entire uh anti-europe movement he made it that way and so I have a suspicion that actually this is not going to work out too well for him. I think it maybe looks a bit more like dithering on his part and that maybe if people who want to uh, support Brexit are going to think actually there's now only really one party that's campaigning actively for that and that's the Conservative Party. So I think this is probably, although we will see how it shakes out and, and we should remember that uh, Farage is, is a very powerful campaigner. He goes out on the road and he meets people and he persuades them. On balance, I think this is probably good news for Boris Johnson, uh, because I think that probably it consolidates the uh, the uh, Brexit vote. In the US today, one of the exciting pieces of news to come out is the release of some of the transcripts from the uh, interviews that the, uh, well, not the impeachment committee, but the uh, committees that were uh, interviewing people who have knowledge of uh, some of this Trump Ukraine stuff. The transcripts of those interviews have been released and actually they're really pretty bad for Donald Trump. And so you got to say, it seems like the Democrats are handling this pretty well. There's been a kind of constant drip of information that makes it look worse and worse for Donald Trump. Maybe that's happened organically, but it's also been quite clever the way that they've held on to some pieces of information and released it later. Uh, I saw one person on, uh, on Twitter say, well, maybe the Republicans are just doing a terrible job at this because they're, they're not selectively leaking in the same way and so they're not putting a counter argument in that way but looking at these transcripts at least at least the ones that have been released today there was not a lot of stuff for republicans to selectively leak that made their guy look good so for democrats 
they're playing a good game, and I think they're playing a very tough game. It's still hard to see how a Senate can convict, but maybe in the meantime, they can put a lot of senators in difficult positions and show disunity within the Republican Party, and that would be advantageous for them going into the election. Uh, also, I'm I'm just I'm amazed that uh, Fife Northeast, the constituency with St Andrews in it, is the most marginal constituency in the entire UK. I mean, it was shocking when it switched from a Liberal Democrat seat, uh, which had been safely for for decades, uh, into an SNP seat. But still, I think this perhaps points out the uh, uh, argument that the uh, Liberal Democrats were making about wanting to have the election earlier. Uh, uh, they had some procedural reasons for it, but uh, many commentators thought that it was uh, something to do with uh, student timetables. Uh, would the students still be on campus? Well, St. Andrews, there's a lot of students. Well, there's about 6,000 students there, but that could clearly make the, a significant difference in a constituency if there's only two vote difference. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the university will still be uh, during doing classes on the 12th, just as on the 9th. So we'll probably... Uh, that's uh, good news for the Liberal Democrats and uh, bad news for the SNP. Although, of course, the SNP are also pretty competitive with the student vote, so maybe not. Hey, Gulf, it's uh, the uh, morning of November the 5th, uh, Guy Fawkes Day. Uh, and it occurs to me that we've been talking about uh, the election in the UK that's happening in six weeks, and we've been talking about the election, the presidential election in the US that happens in a year. But there's actually elections happening today in the US in certain states in Kentucky and Mississippi and in Virginia. And so it'd be interesting to get your take on what's going on there. Uh, the Kentucky race is supposed to be a bit close, but that kind of blows my mind. I mean, Kentucky is a traditionally Republican state. That's Mitch McConnell's state. So what has happened to make that race so tight? Is this about Donald Trump and his unpopularity or is it some kind of local issue? I was just thinking about that last night uh, and uh wanted to kind of get your take on a couple of things as well. Yeah, so today is election day. Um, it's also Guy Fawkes Day, so hope that you enjoy the fireworks if you if you see any. Uh, we've had some early uh, excited people firing fireworks in places that I really wouldn't suggest people fire fireworks, but anyway. Um, <clears throat> so with the elections in, in the States, uh, the ones that are getting the most attention are Kentucky, uh, governor's race, uh, Louisiana governor's, governor's race, and Virginia um, House of Delegates uh, and uh, state senate races. Um, the Mississippi race is also getting a little bit of attention, but but not as much. So <clears throat> the the reason why uh, they're getting a lot of attention is because they're all technically southern states. Um, all of them, well, aside from Virginia, are kind of known as red states, and the thinking is, is that if the Republicans get really trounced uh, in these gubernatorial races, uh, that could uh, be implied that it's a referendum on on Trump. Um, I don't think that's quite right. And I think that Trump has tried to inject himself into these races. Some would say in a way that is uh, uh, risky. Um, and yeah, it's risky. But at the same time, Trump's actual approval rating in Kentucky is, you know, over 50%. Um, his approval rating in Louisiana uh, is not underwater either. Mississippi, it's certainly not underwater. So, like, I don't really think it's necessarily, like, um, 
a referendum on Trump. Um, I think that if they're able to make it, so the Kentucky race in particular, if they're able to make it into a national race and, and a referendum on Trump, then I think the uh, the the incumbent uh, will win. Uh, so you have a uh, Bevan and and Bashar or Bashar. Uh, let me just get the pronunciation. Uh, Bashar. Uh, so Andy Bashar is the or Bashir is the um, uh, the attorney general, the current attorney general of Kentucky, and he's uh, the Democratic challenger. And then um, Bevan is the uh, incumbent, and and Bevan is is very unpopular uh, in in Kentucky, and so a lot of people are thinking, well, he's a a, a, a primary target uh, that might get upset by um, a Democrat who's already won statewide office. He's the Bashar is the the, attor the attorney general, so he's already won like statewide office more. Um, but you're seeing that what Bevan has been doing is he's trying to tie himself to Trump a little bit more. So actually, he he's doing the reverse of what people everyone thinks uh, you know they should be doing. Right? Uh, you should be running away from Trump if you're worried about Trump uh, attaching yourself to Trump. Um, so he's trying to nationalize this race in the ultimate of state races, the, the race for governor. Um, Bevan has been out talking about impeachment and all that kind of stuff, uh, trying to take the, the voters' minds off the fact that he's just incredibly unpopular. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see, like, if he loses, uh, I think everyone will say, oh, you know, Trump is, this is a big, big problem for Trump and all this stuff. I think it would just be because Kentucky is, um, yes, it's a red state, but also, um, you know, if, if if a governor is unpopular, it's it's it's, it's certainly possible for them to to uh, elect uh, blue state uh, you know governors before or blue state governors as well. Sorry, uh, it, it's certainly possible for a red state to elect a uh, Democratic governor, um, and vice versa. You know, Maryland's one of the the bluest of blue states, and it has a Republican governor right now. Louisiana right now, um, Bell Edwards, he is the the defending um here he's the incumbent so louisiana currently has a a, a blue governor a uh, a democratic governor the race in louisiana is similarly similarly uh kind of trying to be picked pegged by the the media as like uh, incumbency and trump i think actually what to look for in louisiana is if um bell edwards uh, goes down i actually think that is a concern for Democrats in some ways because you had a governor that was relatively popular in Louisiana um, and a Democrat, and the and then the Republican is able to win without a backlash against Trump. I think that's actually a bigger problem because it it kind of shows that this like core rejection of Trump amongst um, what are they referring to them as as uh, Buddha judges is. Uh, referring to them as Republicans, conservatives with conscience, conscience. So, you know, Buttigieg and, and some of these other candidates are always referring to, you know, we, we want to appeal to liberals, moderates and conservatives with conscience. So, um, so presumably that would be that there's this, or that would imply that there's all this silent majority of conservatives that really just don't like Trump and they're looking for an excuse to show that, but they won't speak out uh, publicly. If Bell Edwards goes down in Louisiana, I think that's a much harder thing to argue for because, um, you know, uh, it, 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 it's not 
the the race was tried tried to nationalized tried to get nationalized it was it would have been and they uh would have not ha not suffered like a negative impact so the uh mississippi one is interesting because the democrat actually stands a reasonable chance of getting uh, more votes than the Republican. You'd think that that would be it. However, it's not. So in Mississippi, you have to get a uh, both a majority or a majority of the uh, electorate plus um, a majority of all the districts, which is very weird. Um, Mississippi has a couple of very weird rules. Uh, and so it's not necessarily likely that the Democrat will win there. Uh, the Virginia House race or the Virginia races, this uh, gives the Democrats a chance to finally turn uh, Virginia properly blue. And by that, I mean, like right now, the Republicans have a, a majority that was literally decided on a coin flip last time. So if they're able to turn the legislature blue, uh, they're able to then start enacting a lot of changes that uh, the Democrats have wanted to do in, in Virginia for a long time. So that is your kind of rundown of all of the, the, the races as, as, as I kind of understand them. I haven't really done a lot of reading about them, but, um, uh, on the UK side or oh, for, first off, a couple questions. Um, what do you think looking at the races? Do you think that it's, it's a referendum on Trump? I certainly don't. Uh, and um, and which which race interests you the most, or, or or what's like the most interesting anecdote? On the on the British side, you're seeing that even though the even before the campaign has started, uh, people are starting to like trot out messages, and I didn't know that that was allowed. So I'd love some education on that point. Like you know, I see Joe Swinson's pulling a a Brexit bus um, <laughs> a type. Uh, you know, let's have a remain bonus and we'll spend that on the NHS and stuff like this. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Like, should they really be out uh, campaigning yet? Um, is that allowed? Uh, I don't know. I, I was just I was just confused by that. Good evening, Gordon. Um, I just wanted to kind of go back to something that you said the other day. Uh, we were arguing back and forth about Joe Biden as the front runner uh, and you you rattled off some nonsense statistics to 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 back up your point. And uh, while that was all very, you know, statistically relevant and all, I would encourage you to have a look at the whatever it was called Liberty and Justice um, dinner event uh, where each of the Democratic candidates in Iowa had about 12 minutes to talk and um, and and watch Joe Biden's speech. Uh, versus other people's speeches. He is making the the uh, historical same error that other reactionary political um, uh, candidates tend to make. You know, if people are asked, why are you wanting to be to to vote for Joe Biden or why is Joe Biden running? or what does he stand for? The number one answer is he can beat Donald Trump. And his um, his speech opened with that. He said, uh, Trump is not is afraid to, to face me because I'll beat him. And that's all he can really say. And I think that's a huge mistake. He is not running for anything right now. He doesn't, you know, he, he, he bitches about uh, Warren's plan but his plans aren't 
aren't out. They aren't released. He's not actually advocating for something. He's advocating for a return to something. And he's advocating um, that he is not the alternative. And I don't think you win that way. I really don't. I think either he's going to lose the nomination, which I, I do think will happen. But if he wins the nomination, he will lose against Trump that way. So anyway, those are my thoughts. Hope that you're uh, enjoying Guy Fox night. Good morning, Gordon. It is the 6th of November. Uh, and uh, I'm waking up to looking at the results of the elections in the U.S. Um, I was wrong about Louisiana. That's actually next week. Um, so not this week. Uh, but all the other elections have happened. And um, basically, uh, so the Democrats have won in uh, Virginia. They've now taken the Senate, the state Senate, and the uh, the legislature or the, the House of Delegates. Uh, so they have uh, a trifecta, trifecta in the state. So they control the um, the governor's uh, seat uh, and both houses. So uh, that means that Virginia can now kind of start passing quite progressive legislation that uh, a series of Democratic governors have always been wanting to pass. Uh, in Kentucky, the Democrat looks like he's uh, beaten the Republican. So a lot of people are trying to spin this as terrible for Trump or um, a or in or an indicative that impeachment is not a good enough argument to bring the Republicans out to vote um, or what have you. But as I said yesterday, I don't. I really just think the I mean the governor the incumbent Republican governor was the second most unpopular governor in the country, um, and uh, if and to squeak by in a win, I like I don't really think you really should be putting too much stock in uh, Kentucky um, being an indictment or a, an indication of how the country might vote uh, for Trump. I just think that's a red herring, and I really. Should, think people should stop uh, putting too much stock in it. Uh, Mississippi was, as as also expected, not hugely surprising. The uh, the Republican won, uh, and it looks like Republicans are going to make gains throughout uh, all the districts. So uh, looks like they're going to be a supermajority again in uh, in Mississippi. Again, not hugely surprising, uh, given that it's Mississippi. Uh, and then over here, uh, the election has officially kicked off, uh, and uh, Boris Johnson wrote a piece in the Telegraph um, that uh, portrays uh, Britain as a uh, a speed car stuck in traffic, and and if we can just get out of the EU, we'll be open to so many amazing deals, and uh, and, and so much prosperity. Uh, might be true, but given his last uh, assertion about um, money saved going to the NHS, I think it's a little rings a little hollow. Uh, so, what are you what are you reading this morning? Hey, Gil. Good morning. Uh, yes, the uh, the election results uh, in the U.S. yesterday are pretty interesting. Um, in Virginia, it would be easy to dismiss the uh, results as just a continuation of a trend that's been going on for 12 years as that state has become more democratic. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. 
Um, in Kentucky, uh, I think that that's also super interesting. Um, yeah, Matt Bevin lost, but also um, the five other Republicans who are running for statewide office, they all won, which implies a lot of split ticket voting, people voting against Matt Bevin, uh, but for the rest of the Republican ticket. And so maybe that does say, yeah, that this was mainly a local issue. Matt Bevin is fantastically unpopular and is uh, regarded as being quite incompetent. And so that's what happened. On the other hand, Trump went and campaigned there in a traditionally Republican seat where Matt Bevin was ahead in the polls and yet the guy lost. He lost by less than 1% of the vote, but he lost. And so I wonder if, uh, although I completely agree with what you said that has nothing to do with, um, or really is not a good indicator of uh, nationally how Rep Democrats are gonna do and is Trump in trouble. But on a specific, specifically looking at what, what kind of power does Donald Trump have? One of his powers is that he can turn to Republicans and say, you need me to be able to win. Well, I think that that's not true. I think you can look at um, Kentucky and say that that's not what's happening. So uh, that, that Trump went and campaigned there and yet Matt Bevin still lost in a seat where he should have been straightforwardly able to win. And so, of course, um, maybe that's not really Trump's superpower. Maybe Trump's superpower is not you need me to win. It's that if you screw me, you'll lose because I will attack you relentlessly on Twitter and I'll get my followers to attack you and will challenge you in the primaries and so forth. Um, so I'm just wondering, though, what do you think? What does this mean for Trump's power to influence the caucus going forward, coming at a time when he really needs as much influence as possible, in the, uh, specifically in the Senate for these kind of statewide races, um, uh, where, where he uh, may need uh, loyalty in order to avoid being impeached and thrown out of office? Um, yeah. Okay. Thanks. 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 Thanks for your opinions on um, on Joe Biden yesterday. Yeah, it was those those were some zingers you were throwing at me. Um, look, I think I think we're confusing two different things here. Um, is if the question is is Joe Biden ahead of the polls and the favorite to win? I think the argument has to be yes. He is ahead in the polls. He's been consistently ahead of the polls. Nothing has dented that, and um, he he's quite popular in the Democratic Party, maybe not the Democratic Party you see on Twitter, but the Democratic Party that comes out to vote, or at least that responds to polling. Um, and part of his appeal is that he can and has won votes in places in the industrial Midwest, which, hello, those are the places that Democrats need to win in order to beat Trump, because that's how Trump won last time. Uh, even though he lost the popular vote, he won the Electoral College because he made unexpected gains in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan. And a lot of Democrats have come out for views that are very unpopular in those places, like saying ban fracking. Well, when you say ban fracking, maybe you get a lot of support in California, but in Pennsylvania, in Western Pennsylvania, people hear, hey, you want to you want me to lose my job? Well, that's not going to be a popular opinion. So yeah, people are saying you got to bat Joe Biden because he's the one who's going to win. If your question though is, is Joe Biden a great campaigner? No, he's not a great campaigner. He is a terrible campaigner. He's run for president, what, four times now? And he lost all the other times that he ran in the past. Um, his value on the Democratic ticket for, with Barack Obama was his ability to uh, bring over uh, working class voters in Pennsylvania and, and the industrial Midwest. And now it turns out that's the, um, the, those are the key voters for, for beating Trump. So it's not a surprise that he's ahead, but it's also, yeah, you're right. He's, he's really terrible at campaigning. And when you see these speeches and you see him talking at, at the events and even performing in the debates, he's actually pretty poor. So 
I don't disagree with you that um, he's going to be, he's not going to be a great nominee in terms of actually, you know, going out on the stump and getting people excited and stuff. People are voting for him because they think it's strategically the right thing to do. So in the UK, today is actually the, uh, the first official day of campaigning. Uh, Boris Johnson's going to the Queen to ask for a dissolution of Parliament and to, to get the ball rolling on uh, the campaign. Of course, the, the campaign has already been going on for a few days or, depending on your point of view, maybe a few years. Um, Jeremy Corbyn having been asking for a new election since the last one. Um, yeah, OK, it's got off to a bad start for the Conservatives because uh, the news this morning is about Jacob Rees-Mogg saying some uh, insensitive things about the uh, Grenfell Tower victims, basically saying that the, the victims uh, should have ignored the advice of the fire brigade, which is is true. In retrospect, it, the the report that came out uh, last week said, yeah, that that was that was bad advice. But the idea that somehow the people who died in that are to blame for themselves for not ignoring that advice and having having the insight to do that. That is a ridiculous idea, and, and he's had to walk that back, but it really feeds into a perception of Jacob Rees-Mogg and uh, of the Conservatives more generally as being out of touch with, uh, with uh, ordinary people's concerns. And so that's uh, it's not a great start for uh, Boris Johnson. Um, on the Labour side, I've seen a lot of people um, uh, sharing an interview uh, from uh, Good Morning Britain, in which Keir Starmer is uh, repeatedly asked to explain what on earth the Labour position is, and I got to tell you, actually, I think that's a winning, a winning position, a winning argument, because actually, although Labour keep on saying it's clear and reporters keep on telling them that it's not clear, I actually kind of think it is clear. You know, negotiate a new deal and then have a referendum on that. It doesn't, it's not, it's not that difficult. The thing that's problematic about it, um, that that makes it awkward, is because well, in the last election. They, uh, Labour said, well, we will respect the outcome of the referendum. Um, but the other thing I think that makes it difficult that hasn't really been talked about is that although that's a very clear position for what happens if you come into government, what is your position in, if you get into opposition? Polling does not suggest that Labour is going to win. And so when you vote for a party, you kind of want to know, hey, what are they, they going to stand for? What are they going to vote? How are they going to try and influence legislation? If you vote for the Democrats, maybe you don't expect them to win. But you at least know what their priorities are going to be, how they're going to vote, what kind of influence they're going to try and have, and if there's, in the event of a uh, hung parliament, what it is that their priorities are going to be. When Labour have this very nuanced position on, on Brexit, well, well, you know, we'll renegotiate and now we'll have a referendum. Actually, if they don't win the election, you really don't know how, they're, as a block, they're going to vote. So then you have to look at your individual MP and ask, well, are they more of a Remainer MP or are they more of a... Um, or your candidate, are they more of a Remainer candidate or more of a Leave candidate? And so I think that that maybe is going to be a problem for Labour Party going forward. But I'd be fascinated to hear your take. I think I think the reason why the uh, Labour Party's position isn't clear, or at least doesn't come across as clear, is kind of precisely what you're what you're saying. Basically, the Labour Labour's position is we're going to uh, extend. We're going to ask for a yet another extension so that we can either renegotiate a deal or have a referendum, uh, depending on how efficient they are with striking that deal. They've said that that deal will include, uh, you know, customs union um, and 
so 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 what that what they're basically saying is we're going to come in we're going to uh strike a new deal that's going to be what everybody calls soft brexit and we're going to have a referendum um where you can pick soft brexit or remain um or i don't know maybe hard brexit i, I have no idea what they would what they do there and i i think the i think the reason why that isn't very clear is because they're not saying um this is our preferred argument because they also are talking about well we're going to renegotiate a new deal but we might advocate for remain in the um in the referendum so at least the conservatives are saying we are we want to renegotiate a deal and we want to honor brexit and so i think that's one of the reasons why keir starmer is not coming across as very clear even though i have to say like when he explains especially when he explains in parliament his positions or or labor's positions i actually think he does a, a rather good job of slowly taking you through everything um in in quite a measured um way i i, I quite like his style as a politician i think though that what it shows is like labor is trying to thread a needle with with uh um uh you know between positions hoping that they're able to assemble a coalition of both leavers and remainers who uh who, you know who they convince to who they can convince to to kind of stay on board and the result though is not clarity in terms of what that's going to be you know if labor was saying this is our position we want to um honor the referendum however we are going to be advocating for a soft brexit so you're not going to get another referendum but we're going to leave the customs union and and that's it if in the future uh Britain wants to vote again so that they can leave the customs union fine but that's for another time we would have achieved brexit we would have taken back some control but we would still not be you know uh uh you know putting out everybody else that's like if if that was their position i think that would be okay that's incredibly clear right they 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 want this this closer um uh uh, interaction with Europe. Uh, they also uh, want to honor the the referendum. No problem. My problem is, and I think what a lot of people's problem is, is that their their current the 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 position might sound clear to you, but the end game does not sound clear. Whereas at least with the conservatives, it sounds a little clearer in terms of, uh, well, no, no, we want Brexit to happen. We have this deal right now. We want this deal to go through. And with the Lib Dems, um, it's very clear because if you elect us and if we get in government, we'll just cancel Brexit. Right. So that's I think that's the, the root as to why it doesn't seem very clear.